Turn in your copy of the scriptures, and if you don't have your own, uh, page 891 in the Pew Bible, please follow along as we read again from Ezekiel. Last week we followed how Ezekiel was given this tremendous vision from the Lord, kind of an overwhelming vision from the Lord. And um, now we have an opportunity to see how he reacts. We're starting in chapter 1. We're going to start at the end of that chapter, verse 28, where we left off last week. There was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. This was. And when I saw it, I fell, fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet, and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you, and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. You must speak my words to them whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you, and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, go now to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. You're not going to, not being sent to a people of obscure speech and difficult language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of obscure speech and difficult language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I had sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the house of Israel is not willing to listen to you, because they are not willing to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hardened and obstinate. But I will make you an unyielding and as hardened as they are. I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. And he said to me, Son of man, listen carefully and take to heart all the words I speak to you. Go now to your countrymen in exile and speak to them. Say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says whether they listen or fail to listen. Then the Spirit lifted me up, 
And I heard behind me a great, a loud rumbling sound. May the glory of the Lord be praised in his dwelling place. The sound of the wings of the living creatures brushing against each other and the sound of the wheels beside them, a loud rumbling sound. And then the spirit then lifted me and took me away. And I went in bitterness and in anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord upon me. I came to the exiles who live at Tel Aviv near Kibar River. And there, where they were living, I sat among them for seven days, overwhelmed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, now, if you will join me with the, the praise. It's been said that how you think of God is the most important thing about you. I believe uh, Ezekiel has some very important things to teach us about how we should think of God. Last week we looked at Ezekiel's extraordinary vision of God in uh, chapter 1. The prophet wasn't describing God exactly. I mean, he's careful to qualify his description, piling up words like likeness and appearance to make sure that no one would think that he was actually giving us a photographic picture of God. What he saw was only the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, he says. But what he gives us is enough to shatter any uh, comfortable images we may have that God can easily be captured by our brains and can fit comfortably into nice, neat categories that we can comprehend. No, uh, the Lord, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, our God is an awesome God. He is beyond us. He's far greater than anything we can imagine. He is over us, uh, ruling the cosmos, even our own lives, from His heavenly throne. And He is with us, inescapably present, everywhere, always. And more than anything else, our God is frightfully holy. You do not want to mess with this God, for His white-hot holiness is a consuming fire. When I saw it, Ezekiel says, I fell face down. He prostrated himself before this formidable and frightful presence. And who wouldn't? Now, I don't think it's unusual for people to have certain experiences that that make us think what God might be like. I, I think of the what it would be like to be involved in an earth-shattering earthquake or the the brute force of a hurricane or the shattering impact of a lightning bolt. They all might make us think of the source of that power. Or it might simply be the sight of the the endless expanse of the stars on a dark night or the the miracle of the birth of a baby or the, the wonder we feel at the vast array of living creatures that populate the earth. All of these may may shape our perception, our thoughts about God as a kind of life force, a powerful energy, a mighty first cause of all that is. And you see, that's how many people think of God. It's all rather vague. It's all rather nebulous. Their thoughts of God are blurry and indistinct. But but how could it be otherwise, they say? In fact, they seem to take offense at those who claim to know anything very specific about God. I mean, God... 
doesn't God necessarily transcend our categories of thought? I mean, and they use Ezekiel's vision to make their point. But if they do, they would be wrong. For you see, Ezekiel's experience of God doesn't end with chapter 1. Or better, the end of chapter 1 points us to a new and essential aspect of the nature of God that we dare not neglect. You see, whereas chapter 1 is dominated by visual imagery, focusing on what the prophet saw, chapter 2 is all about what the prophet heard. And it's not talking about the sound of the wings and the wheels. Look at verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 28, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. You see, this great God, this God who is beyond us, this great God speaks. He communicates. He makes himself known. He declares his will in words. Notice the emphasis here in the first two verses. I heard the voice of one speaking. Chapter 2, verse 1. He said to me, Son of man, stand upon your feet and I will speak to you. Verse 2. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet and I heard him speaking to me. Do you get the point? Our God speaks. Twice Ezekiel's message is simply described as, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Three times the prophet is charged by God to speak my words. Three times he's told to ingest this divine message. He is to proclaim what has already been written as words on a scroll. And twice he's told to listen to what God has to say. The clear message of our passage is this. Our great and awesome God speaks. And I can't tell you how important this is with regard to how we think of God. You see, He's not just a a force. He's not just a, a power. He's a person. He's a divine person. The person from whom our own human personhood is derived. And because He is a person, He can communicate with us. He can be known. He can reveal Himself to us in words. Our God speaks. And you see, that means we're not left in the dark about what he requires of us and what he wants for us. He can make it known so that we can understand. Our God speaks. Do you believe that? I ask you that because I think this is one of the great cultural dividing lines in our world today. See, almost everybody believes in God. I mean, it's it's common knowledge. Ninety five percent of Americans believe in God. But the question is, what kind of God do they believe in? Is he a vague and amorphous kind of God, more a feeling, a force? Is he a mute God whose whose will has to be guessed at, who who may not even have a will at all? Is he a a fill-in-the-blanks kind of God? Is he a a however-you-may-conceive-of-him kind of God? Because that way of viewing God is very common. Even, I dare say, among people who call themselves Christian. They may quote the Bible. But the Bible to them is simply the record of attempts by men to express their experiences of God. And we can appreciate what they have to say, perhaps learn from it. But it's not God who's speaking to us from the Bible. Now, frankly, I find this a very convenient and comfortable way to think about God. Because basically he becomes what you want him to be. You create him in your image. 
Truth is what you make of it. And God can be used to justify just about anything you care to do. But the God of the Bible, the God whom Ezekiel encountered, he is a God who speaks. He is a God who can communicate to us what he is really like and what he actually requires of us. He speaks truth, his truth into our world. And there's a huge difference here, you see. For if God speaks, it follows quite naturally and inescapably that we must listen to Him. We must obey Him. And that, you see, is exactly what Israel had failed to do. Look at how Israel is described in this passage. The Lord says to Ezekiel in verse 3, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I'm sending you are obstinate and stubborn. The Lord God had spoken very clearly to the Israelites. I mean, the Lord had rescued them from their slavery in Egypt. He'd he'd revealed his will to them in the giving of his law on Mount Sinai. They had the Ten Commandments. They knew the regulations for proper worship. They knew God's way of righteousness and justice. And the Lord had entered into a covenant with them like a like a mighty king with a small conquered vassal state. He had he had pledged to be their provider and protector. And they, in turn, had pledged to be loyal to him in absolute allegiance. But they didn't listen. They did not obey. They broke that treaty, that covenant. They rebelled against his righteous rule. They chased after other gods. Now, notice the Lord refuses to call them my people in this passage. In speaking to Ezekiel, he refers to them as your people. They are a rebellious nation. No different from the the pagan nations, the Gentile nations all around them. And there's another image here. Not only are they like a, a rebellious vassal state before a great king, they're also like disobedient and defiant children before their loving father. Verse 5, the house of Israel has become a rebellious house. And that's an accusation that's repeated in verse 6, verse 8, again in chapter 3, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 7, they are not willing to listen to me, for the whole house of Israel is hardened and obstinate. They are disobedient children defying the will of their father. They are obstinate, literally hard of face externally resistant. It's it's like a child whose face says, there is no way I am going to do what you ask. No way. Parents, have you ever seen that face? Who hasn't? And they're stubborn, literally hard of heart, internally insubordinate. Even when there's outward compliance, there's inner dissent. Again, like when you tell your child to sit down. He may sit down on the outside, but on the inside, he's still standing tall. God speaks, but they do not listen. And again, parents, you know the frustration of this, the exasperation you can have with your kids when in their stubborn defiance, they reject your authority. They refuse to bow their wills to yours. It tears your heart out because you want what's best for them. But they think they know better. And you know where what they want will lead them. 
See, that's what the Lord experiences here with Israel. The Lord had already disciplined these people. He'd already given them a, a, a time out. He'd ripped them from their homeland in Judea. He'd sent them 750 miles away to Babylon to think about what they had done wrong. But what these, uh, these people may have been chastened, they remain unbowed. They're not yet broken. They were persisting in their rebellious ways, refusing to submit to the will of the Lord. Our God speaks. You see, He's a personal God. He is the source of all goodness, all truth, all beauty. He rules as the ultimate authority of all the cosmos. His own glory is the highest value. All that He is, all that He does is good and it is right. And we're created to live in a relationship with this God. A relationship of love and faith as faithful sons and daughters before our wise and loving Father. And fundamental to this relationship is His right to command our obedience. His will is the very definition of righteousness and virtue. And He's revealed that will to us in the Bible. He speaks. We must listen. That's what it's all about. Again, isn't the authority of parents over their children in our earthly families just a reflection of this divine authority? And wise and loving parents raising faithful and respectful children makes family life a beautiful thing. But why is that so hard? Why are families torn by strife? Why are marriages so hard to maintain? Why are our workplaces so often contentious? Why do nations go to war against one another? Because we are all too much like Israel. God speaks and we don't listen. Isn't that what happened in the very beginning? In the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Isn't that what happens every day in our own lives? God speaks, but we do not listen. And our hearts become hardened and our ears become deaf to the voice of God. This, you see, is what the Bible calls sin. It's that simple. But isn't it a testimony to the grace of God toward His people that here, even here in Babylon, after they've been sent into exile, He is still speaking to them. He's still addressing them. He's still calling them back to Himself. Such is the mercy of God. But even God's mercy has its limits. But you might well ask, <clears throat> but how does God speak? How does God speak? And that's a question directly addressed in our passage. God speaks through his appointed messengers called prophets. He speaks through those sent by him to speak for him to his people. So let's look again at Ezekiel in our passage. This man who fell face down when seeing this vision of the glory of God, he's commanded now to stand up. And this is entirely appropriate. A person wouldn't dare to rise in the presence of an ancient monarch until he had received authorization to do so by the king himself. Ezekiel moves from posture of submission to one ready for action. He moves from awestruck adoration to active service, from worship to witness. And that's a transition we all have to make, isn't it? Every week when we leave this place, and Ezekiel here is addressed in an unusual way. Son of man, the Lord says to him. 
Son of man. This is the characteristic way that the Lord speaks to Ezekiel through this entire book. The term occurs 93 times. And only 14 times elsewhere in the whole Old Testament. Now many of you will probably recognize this as a way that Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man. It was also an expression used by Daniel in his vision of the heavenly glory in Daniel chapter 7. I don't think there's a clear connection to either of those here. Here it seems to be simply a way of addressing Ezekiel as, as a mere mortal in contrast to the majesty of God, as a human being who stands under the authority of God. Verse 3, the Lord said to him, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. Now, this is not an invitation. This is a summons. Ezekiel does not volunteer for this duty. He is conscripted. The hand of the Lord is upon this man. God has him in his grip. He feels compelled to comply. And this is Ezekiel's commission as a prophet. He is being sent by God. Now, unfortunately, there were many in Israel who claimed to be prophets, but weren't. They came to the people with a message, but they were not sent by God. And we'll address that issue more fully uh, later in the book. But make no mistake here, Ezekiel was sent. And Ezekiel had but one task. He was to say what God told him to say. Declaring quite simply, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 7. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen. Chapter 3, verse 4. He then said to me, Son of man, now go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. Chapter 3, verse 10. And he said to me, Son of man, listen carefully and take to heart all the words I speak to you. Verse 11. Now go to your countrymen in exile and speak to them. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, whether they listen or fail to listen. It's the task of speaking God's words to God's people. And that task is graphically displayed in this rather curious image of the scroll. Now look at chapter 2, verse 9. Then I looked, and I saw a hand stretched out to me. And it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Verse 3, fill your stomach with it. Then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Now, Jeremiah had, had used a similar metaphor of eating a scroll as a picture of taking in the Word of God. For Ezekiel, it seems to be a real sensory action, though it's still a part of this visionary experience. And the boundaries between vision and reality are very, very blurred in all of this. Whether he actually ate the papyrus scroll is not the point. The idea is that Ezekiel is to preach not his own word, but God's. And in a sense, it already stands written. It already fills the scroll on both sides. There's no place for Ezekiel's additions. He can't fill it in as he goes along. As one commentator said, it's not a draft discussion document awaiting the input of various focus groups. It's a given. Ezekiel must simply take it and declare it as it is. 
But this scroll episode, I think, emphasizes something else. Ezekiel is no mere puppet in this process. He is called to participate personally in this prophetic proclamation. The Lord says to him in chapter 2, verse 8, But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. You see, Ezekiel is not to be like unbelieving Israel. He's to listen to God. He's to take in God's word. He doesn't just taste it. No, he's to fill his stomach with it. He's to digest it. He's to be nourished by it. The son of man, listen carefully, he says. Verse 10, take to heart all the words I speak to you. You see, Ezekiel is not just an impersonal mouthpiece. He's to make God's message his own. And in the presentation of it, it will be shaped by Ezekiel's own character, his own training, experience, personality, and passions. But it will still be God's word to God's people. And I think this personal involvement is the responsibility of every preacher who dares to stand before God's people to proclaim God's word And I tell you, this is the hardest part of preaching. It's not the study. It's not the speaking. It's the personal demand of it. It's the fact that I must take to heart what God says myself before I declare it to you. Pray that I may be faithful in that responsibility. And so Ezekiel must take up this task. It will not be easy. For this scroll contains words of lament and mourning and woe. Ezekiel will be called to declare God's judgment upon his people to this people who are already in Babylon. Ezekiel is to declare that things are going to get worse. A lot worse before they get any better. This is not your best life now, you can be sure of it. The prophet will be rejected by his own countrymen. He will be ridiculed. He will be ostracized. He will be isolated. He will be persecuted. But he must speak. Whether they listen to him or not, they will know that a prophet has been in their midst. In fact, the Lord says it would be easier for him if he would go to to some more receptive audience, engaged in cross-cultural missionary work to a different language group, speaking to the Kikiyu tribe in Kenya or the Kazakhs of Kazakhstan. That would be easier than going to the children of Abraham, for their hearts had been hardened by sin. It would not be easy. And so the Lord exhorts Ezekiel. He says in chapter 2, verse 6, And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or be terrified of them, for they are a rebellious house. Don't be afraid of them. And perhaps that's why Ezekiel was given such a fearful vision of God for the person who fears God. Need fear no one else. The Lord assures Ezekiel that as his representative, the prophet would simply be treated as the Lord himself had been treated. Chapter 3, verse 7, But the house of Israel is not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me. This will not be easy. And faithfulness to the Lord in a fallen world never is. Just look at what happened to Jesus. But I want you to see how the Lord encourages Ezekiel. 
Notice that, that though this message that he has to deliver, the words that are written on the scroll result in lament and mourning and woe. When Ezekiel is obedient to God, he eats that scroll. He discovers that it tasted as sweet as honey in his mouth. There is nothing so deeply satisfying as listening to the voice of God and doing the will of God there is nothing so, so rich to our souls as the sense of God's blessing upon us, regardless of the, what the world gives us. It may not mean riches or success or honor or glory, but there is nothing, there is nothing at all like tasting the goodness of God. It is sweet. It is a foretaste of heaven itself. And then you can't help but notice that throughout this passage, the Lord not only encourages Ezekiel, he also empowers him to do what he commands. Ezekiel is not only a man of the book, he's also a man of the spirits. From the first verse of our passage, he said to me, son of man, stand up on your feet. And as he spoke, verse two, the spirit came into me and raised me to my feet. And though Ezekiel will be preaching to a hardened people, the Lord promises to make him up to the task. He, he steals him for this endeavor. I will make you as unyielding and as hardened as they are. I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. He will become what his name Ezekiel means. God strengthens. And Ezekiel experiences the power of the Spirit in his own life. And later his message of hope for the people of God will focus on the Spirit and what God must do to rescue us from our sin, changing us from the inside by His Spirit, taking away our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. But Ezekiel himself, he's still a son of man, a son of Adam, we're not quite sure how he's responding to all this. In chapter 3, verse 14, we read that the Spirit then lifted me up and took me away. And I went in bitterness. And in the anger of my spirit, was the prophet here sharing in the Lord's anger toward his wayward people? Or was this Ezekiel's own bitterness and anger in his spirit at the thought of the awful task that he had been assigned? I suspect that's it. As he asked, why, Lord, did you pick or perhaps better pick on me? He prepared for a very social life as a priest, ministering joyfully in the temple of God, in the midst of the worship of God's people. And now he would be isolated and alone, ostracized and excluded from his countrymen. And it's only the strong hand of the Lord upon him that could keep him faithful to this ominous task. He emerged from this experience overwhelmed. He was exhausted. He was distressed. He was stunned. He was shattered. He was shocked. It would be a week before he could recover. But he would never be the same. Our God is an awesome God. He is powerful. But he is also personal. Our God speaks. He speaks so that we could know him. And when he speaks, we must listen. And as every parent knows, there is a big difference between hearing and listening. Do you recognize that? Now, right now, I suppose almost everyone in this room is hearing the words I said. There may be a few sleepers here. Some of you may even be taking notes. Now, taking notes is a good thing, so long as it's not a matter of, of jotting down what I call fun facts to file away. 
I'll hear it now. I'll think about it later. I'll just write it down. No. That, my friend, is a deceit from the devil. No, God is speaking right now. And the question is, what is God saying to you right now as I speak? That's what you should be writing down in your notes. What is God saying to you? You may want to write it down so that you don't forget it, that it becomes clearly impressed upon your mind so that you might not go quickly go from this place and put it out of your head. You must listen carefully. And you must listen prayerfully. For by nature, our hearts are hard. Our ears are deaf. And we hear God's voice only by God's grace. And this passage this morning assures us that our God speaks. He speaks through prophets like Ezekiel. But as we close, I think you can't talk about this theme of God speaking without going beyond Ezekiel. And I think of the opening words of the letter to the Hebrews where it says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God is so personal. That He has come among us in person, so to speak. As a human being, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God has spoken by His Son. And He's done more than just spoken to us. He's rescued us. He's done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We had turned away from Him. We who followed in the path of the rebellious children of Israel. We've been rescued. We've been redeemed by God's own Son who lived and died and rose again so that we could be forgiven and enter into a new life in a new community. He's come to bring us back to the Father and He does that by the death of His Son on a cross. And He calls us to turn from our sins and return to Him. Are you listening? Are you listening? That's what we celebrate as we come to this table. I close with the words of the letter to the Hebrews again. Today, if you hear His voice, do not turn away from Him as the Israelites did in the desert. See to it that you do not refuse Him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, how much less will we If we turn away from Him who warns us from heaven. I invite you to bow in prayer as I invite our servers to come forward this morning. Let's take a moment to pray. Listen to that voice of God. Perhaps He's speaking a word of conviction. You're convicted of your own sin. Perhaps your own obstinate, your own stubbornness, your own hardness of heart toward the God who created you in His image. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you need to confess your own fears, your anxious thoughts, your little faith. Your failure to, to put Him where He belongs on the throne of your life as He is on the throne of heaven. Perhaps you need to hear that word of command that comes to you. A command that says, forgive, be reconciled 
Be gracious. Be patient. Love in my name. And perhaps most of all, you may need to hear that word of comfort, word of assurance, that you're loved in Christ. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. What a word of grace. May we hear that word afresh as we come to this table this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We come to this table to proclaim that our Lord Jesus was sent by the Father into this world. That He took upon Himself our flesh and blood and bore the wrath of God against our sin. We confess that He was condemned to die. That we might be pardoned and that He suffered death that we might live. We proclaim that He has risen to make us right with God and that He shall come again in glory in the new creation. This we do now until He comes again. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Praise to You, Lord Jesus. Dying, You destroyed our death. Rising, You restored our life. Lord Jesus, come in glory. And so according to His commandment, we remember His death, we proclaim His resurrection, we await His coming in glory. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
The Lord God gave Ezekiel a visible expression of His Word in the form of a scroll. He said, take, eat this scroll. Jesus gives us a visible expression of the living Word of God come among us. His body given for us in this bread. And He says, take, eat my body. Take it to heart. Receive what I have done for you in faith. What a gift. That we eat together in faith. Same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes.
of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sin. Lord, thank you for your grace, your word of the gospel, which rescues us from our hard hearts and deaf ears. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, the work of your spirit to open our eyes and open our ears. Lord, may we hear, may we listen, may we respond in faithful obedience to you. Lord, may this word be sweet in our taste. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing the final stanza. We're the whole realm of nature mine, that we're present far too small. We're the whole realm of nature mine, that we're a present far too small. Love so amazing, so Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.